Hello, it's Denise from Woman Beyond a Certain Age. We have a very special guest today because she's a new friend. I know her from other people that speak so highly of her that I was, I just, I email people and I never even expect that they're going to email me back. And she did. And she said, oh, I'd be happy to. And I was so gracious. She was so gracious. So our guest today is Therese Nelson, who's, well, she's a chef and a writer and a Black historian. And I went to your, so welcome, Therese, welcome. Thank you very much, Lisa. I'm excited to be here. Oh, thank you. I went to your site and it's such, oh, I don't know. It's just, it's inspiring. And there's so many things I know for me, Therese, that I don't know. Do you know what I mean? I, there's, but I do, I know that you loved Edna Lewis. Well, who didn't? But I've, I've known and spent time with Scott Peacock. So that was as close as I got to Edna Lewis. So I was lucky that a close friend of mine was close friends of Leah Chase. So I've always known a little bit about Black culinary history, but not near enough. Well, that's fair. I think that sort of, I didn't either. And I think the reason that I started the site, first of all, thank you for all that. That was super gracious. And I'm glad you took a look at the site. It's sort of been a passion project for about 12 years now. And I think the reason I started it was because I was in the same boat as you. I didn't really know enough about Black colonial history. I had a sort of intuition about why the stories of sort of Black agency and Black sort of authorship in American cuisine was missing, but I had no language for that. And the examples of writers, you mentioned Edna Lewis, but there's also, I mean, there's so many writers who were considering sort of starting to craft the language for our food ways. Tony DeMartin's Jemima Cole tells us, since the birth of the nation, um, there's evidence, but it's not contextualized. And I wanted to sort of have a place where what I was finding would have a home. You said culinary historian. I sort of, I don't know that I would call myself a historian. I think of Tony Tipton Martin and Jessica Harris and, and, and you know, Michael Twitty when I think of historians. I think of myself more as a sort of steward of this culture. Like we do this work professionally, right? And there's sort of responsibility to kind of cultural commentary and sort of cultural definition and stewardship is sort of more active I think. Well you are growing into it young lady. That's <laughs> yes, what it is. yes. And all the, one, all the people that you mentioned of course are phenomenal. Um, it's very it's a very to me it's a very exciting time. When I saw the ad for Jessica Harris's new Netflix show coming out. Mm -hmm. Now I probably met Jessica Harris, I don't know, like 15 years ago at IACP, if you know IACP, yep. which is- I'm a member, yeah. Well, High on the Hog has been sitting, I mean, I read it when it came out and I'm rereading it now. I remember, because I spent a lot of time in television working on TV shows and stuff. When I read that book, the first time I thought, well, this is a TV series. What's going on here? You know what I mean? Yep. And for it to have taken this long, to thank God, better late than never, better late than never. But I mean, this, it's just exciting. So I think as you as a steward, you're just, you're younger and you're starting new paths for it, for all this information to come to us. I think it's, it's admirable. Oh, I appreciate that. So 
Now tell us, I love the word that you used, your passion. Tell us a little bit about your background. Teresa, I know you went to Johnson, Wales, mm -hmm. one of the finest culinary schools in America. All right. And tell us how, how did you start in food? Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in North New Jersey. I don't know if anyone is familiar with sort of the Tri-State area, but we're 20 minutes from New York City. And it's, it's so strange now to think back to that time, but my imagination for the world outside of where I was from was very limited. I thought I would become a computer engineer. I thought I'd stay in Jersey. I thought I was going to work for Prudential. I had done all these sort of um, I was in a magnet school and was sort of being fed into, I was, I grew up in the late nineties when you sort of technology was emerging and this sort of sense of, if you got a job in tech, you would sort of always have a sort of stable, secure, you know, adult hey, life. Yes. Right. And also my mom was, I mean, she's single and she sort of didn't have any real reference point for really any things I wanted to do. She just sort of felt like if you could sort of have a clear tangible path forward, you're going to be set. But I don't know that I really thought about adult life as a passion-filled perspective, like from a passion-filled perspective. My grandparents worked the jobs they worked. They sort of earned money and like had a secure, like sort of took care of us. But I don't know that I ever equated adult life with passion. And I was sort of being groomed to go into this industry that I was certainly good at, but had no correlate, no passion for. And so many people I was in community with back then were 100% passionate about tech. And it just occurred to me that if I was gonna go forward and I wasn't that passionate, that I should sort of maybe think about the things I was actually interested in. But it's also your point about being television, right? This is the time of food television sort of really becoming much more vibrant and much more sort of sort of exploded in this era. And so I started thinking about, well, I have no reference point for what a life in food is, but I certainly see it. It's certainly outside of myself. And I mentioned the thing about being so tangential to New York because I don't know that I ever thought about food as a, a real industry. Being 20 minutes away from the food capital of the world, that's a strange thing to sort of intellectualize now. I don't know. I just, I, my mother is a, my mother is a miraculous person and she, I told her that I was interested and we sort of started researching how to actually contextualize what a life in food would be. And back then there weren't a lot of schools that were offering degrees. I had to justify to my mother that I was going to be able to get an actual bachelor's degree and be something that was usable outside of this thing I wasn't quite sure about. And so going to Johnson Wales was really the, the, the main thing. I didn't have reference point for it. I didn't have these, these soulful connections to, you know, this like expansive food life growing up. I saw the food world as a viable professional option and then I could learn a little bit about it along the way and kind of find an artistic sort of home for myself as well as professional life. I think going to school though, I was struck by how little I knew about the food world and how much I felt, I felt like everyone else knew something I didn't know. Like there was this sort of, there were these rules that existed that I just wasn't privy to. And as hard as I was trying, as much as I was learning, there was still this sort of prescriptive way that you had to sort of navigate a, a culinary career that just didn't fit with my personality, with um, sort of my interest. I started out in Providence and then I went to Charleston. And I think the shift to go to Charleston really was the defining moment of my, my early culinary life because here's this place where 
fine dining was emerging in Charleston at that time. We're talking about just before Sean Brock came to Charleston, just before sort of it sort of became to emerge as this kind of that low country cuisine, that southern cuisine as valuable in the sort of culinary marketplace. Certainly wasn't interested in the fragile nature of fine dining restaurants because I understood the math. I constantly counted as one of my favorite aspects of this work and the numbers don't make a lot of sense. The very European, very male dominated aspects of fine dining also didn't suit me. But I was also in Charleston in a place where I was working with so many black women in hotels and in restaurants who made low country cuisine sing. Charlie Jenkins, Sally Ann Robinson, talking about Martha Lou Gaston just passed away. Like these women existed in Charleston in a way, in this very black city that showed me a dynamic of possibility that defied what I was being taught, but certainly um, showed me a way of um, sort of moving forward. So Charlie Jenkins to me was a hero. I mean, she had a restaurant that wasn't downtown Charleston, but she was someone who also was catering and she sort of existed in her own cultural world. So she created her own success. That's I right. mean, she created her own world and this is, to me, oh God, it's just exciting. Uh, Therese, most of the women I know that have been successful in food and then throughout their lives, the vision was not the path that other people thought would be good for them was not. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And then they had to find their own path. My family were Italian immigrants. My father was even born in Italy. But Therese, when I grew up, your job, whatever your job was, you just went to work because you had to pay the rent. Do you know what I mean? That was it. Then my father had broke the mold a little bit and had some success. So I did what he did. And the day I said to my family, I'm going to go to the Culinary Academy in San Francisco and be a chef. And my mother was so stunned. She said, isn't that why we sent you to college the first time so you wouldn't end up working in a kitchen? She was horrified. She kept saying, that. I said, but mom, I, I really want to do this. But she said, Denise, that's really hard. Blue collar work, you know what I mean? Blah, blah, blah. And all the things you said, luckily at the time, because I just jump and find out later if there's any water in the pool. I had no idea that it was dominated by nasty little Frenchmen that were going to try to pinch my ass, spit on me at the same time. <laughs> and it was not even the food I liked. I remember thinking, they can't define me. I'm gonna find some way to make my, to make a business or create a life for myself. And so when you're just saying that, Trace, it makes me so proud of you because it's not an easy path. Nope. But how smart you were to go to Charleston. How smart you were to go to Charleston. I don't know. I just, I felt at home in a way that I don't know that I would have, I, I felt in Providence. I'm from New Jersey, but like there's this, this very particularity to, to Providence as a city. Charleston just feels like home. If you can't help but be infused with or sort of enveloped by um, the cultural significance of that city. But I don't know. I mean, in terms of beginnings, yeah, I think that I, I certainly was intellectualizing a lot of that back then, but it certainly um, it certainly stayed with me as I was sort of getting those first jobs and sort of de defining the early parts of my career. I think also when you were talking about other female chefs, 
See, when I first got out of school, there were no female chefs, really. There was like two of them, honestly. There was the woman, I can't think of her name right now, but, oh, Lydia, not the Lydia, another woman, and she was in Boston. But uh, there were no women chefs that were running restaurants yet, certainly not in hotels, certainly a few caterers. I used to say to my friends when they went into restaurants, I'd say, can you get a job with a woman in a restaurant? Do you know what I mean? There might be a chance that it's a little better than, you know, a French guy yelling at you all afternoon. It's difficult. It, it's still difficult for women. So you're, I'm talking 20 years later for you, Therese, and it's still difficult to find a support system and to find a group. What I will say is that one of the things I was has always been fascinating to me and was one of the things that Charleston showed me and certainly um, starting to sort of think more expansively about colonial history is that all of a sudden we start to really dig, dig into archives and dig into sort of um, evidence and sort of even if it's disparate, I mean, it's not like sort of in the space of food, like you sort of find these evidences of these amazing women historically who have always been. And so your point about like restaurants, surely, like my point also about not really being interested so much in restaurants was that the evidence is just so flimsy. And, but that when I started to think about the world of catering and sort of defining myself in that space, all of a sudden they were all examples there were examples especially of black women from georgia gilmore to you know this woman who's in new york in the 50s 60s and 70s named cleo johns who the um lee brothers unearthed and we've been sort of on the search for on the hunt for um, more information about her but there are these examples of black women who existed in this space in the catering space who when this work wasn't cool, when it wasn't valuable to anyone else, when it wasn't a multi-trillion dollar industry who held down these traditions, who made businesses for themselves and their communities. And my, my thing was, if I could, even just a tiny bit of that legacy was infused into the way I was going to move through my career, it would be much more valuable in terms of a, a framework than any of the fine dining white male examples that I was being told were the most valuable. You couldn't have said it better. And it's not easy because in 1984, I got out of school. And when I moved to LA, I got a job in a catering company and the chef, he was a junkie. So he left soon. He was this nasty, nasty guy. And they promoted me and they really promoted me because I was there and I was the only, you know what I mean? And they were going into a busy season. But later on, Therese, the three biggest catering companies in Los Angeles, we were all the executive chefs were women. And this was in the, you know, in 88. And I remember thinking, saying, so who, who said we couldn't do this? But you're right about the history. Michelle Richard was winning this award once in Los Angeles. And I was invited to this fancy, fancy dinner. All the newspaper people were there and you know, all the media people, but he got up and he started to cry when he won the award and he said, the only person I can really thank is my mother. He said, because she taught me to cook. And at that moment, I remember thinking, black or white, we're always the people that were the ones that were in the back cooking, always. It was us. We had to feed babies. We had to feed our families. And then women stepped out and said, well, I'm going to charge somebody for this. Do you know what I mean? And got paid. It's pretty clear in the history of mankind that women were the ones that cooked. 
me and so what does it say about your point to your point right what does it say about the 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 men that we lift up as the world's best that are all influenced by their mothers what does it say about who we should be listening to who we should be thinking of as sort of authors and sort of um fully and sort of restore full agency to as valuable in the marketplace i think that's a fair question to ask that's right i've been working on a project nothing has come it's not, it's so in the beginning, Trays, but one of the producers said to me, well, what about a couple of the great male chefs? I said, male chefs get plenty of help by themselves. I said, they don't even have to be good. And, they, and of course, I sound like the bitter feminist that I am, but I just, I shut that down in a heartbeat because I said, no, the whole idea would be a celebration of women, not about men. Denise, I don't, I don't really entertain those kinds of those kind of questions right because it I think it's so interesting what you're talking about because it's literally about moving center so often when we're talking about the work we do and sort of the perspectives that we come from specificity is the most important thing like you can have these sort of generalized conversations about the child problems with our industry even generalization generalizing things about sort of misogyny and issues with men in our industry are perfectly valuable but they also don't center the real work right the real work is what happens if you move center to thinking about and caring about and being in community with women the ways in which your work yeah. changes and infuses has nothing to do with not not being in community with men. It has to do with what is valuable and important to you. And we don't ask that question of ourselves enough, I think. I think it's so critical to just kind of be so clear about the space you occupy and not being worried about the rest of it because it's sort of, the world is gonna take care of itself, I guess. I think you're very smart and very wise for a very young woman. <laughs> I'm not that mature, but I... <laughs> But you're right. There is a focus on what's important and what you have to get done. That's what I've yeah. tried to, in my in my life is what I need to get done. Now, so what are you planning? What's your ideal sort of project or things you like to do? Sure. So a couple of things. I mean, I just started a podcast. Um, with halfway through the season. I'm focusing on Black desserts and it's sort of interrogating the life of pastry chefs. And it's fascinating because it's telling these stories and it's like, to your point, right? It's, it's sort of moving center. I'm interested, I was interested in this notion of what it means to be a modern chef and putting my imagination onto what other people think. I think that we talk a lot about the sort of notion of there's no monolithic blackness, but there is a sort of essential nature to marginalize identities in a very general industry and so often um the world of pastry is marginalized in a way that is there's, there's a specificity to pastry work that is so profound and so interesting so we um, partnered with talenti and doing a limited series that sort of focuses on the amazing work black chefs in the pastry worlds are creating so it's part of, small projects like that that sort of allow me to sort of interrogate single questions are kind of where my focus is right now. I'm working on my first book proposal, have an agent and sort of thinking about a book that sort of does the work that my site does in terms of, so your point about Dr. Harris, like I, I pray people ahead of this docuseries, go and revisit the book. Like a lot of people I know haven't actually read it. Go out and buy this book because it is so profoundly foundational to your entire understanding around the sort of timeline of Black identity in American cuisine. 
But I think that there's also a necessity for sort of layering this scholarship with other thoughts, right? Like her book, I think, is so beautifully done because it asks us to consider what is American cuisine in a sort of generalized way. I think you think about a book like Tony Simpson's Jamamico, which gives us the sort of cookbook legacy of that timeline. You think about a book like Michael Twitty's The Cooking Gene, and it's asking us to talk about or think about personal identity in that same framework. My book is sort of gonna be about what it means to be a black chef historically, what it was meant before the time when we had language for the colonial industry and what that legacy, what it gives us as modern chefs and what we should be taking with us into our practice. So there's that, but I would just say that you, you, your question was sort of about what I want to do going forward. My site exists as sort of a living archive. It is the books you should be reading. It's the videos you can consume. It's the questions you should be asking yourself. It's a starting place. And so adding more context to that, that resource is really sort of the work that I'm doing. Fabulous. I, and now I know why you call yourself a steward. I love that. I think, oh, it's very exciting. This is a wonderful time. Mm. Sometimes I think in our, in our entire society, we should be much farther ahead than we are. But I've seen so many changes in the last 50 mm. years. Do you know mm. what I mean? And sometimes I think of finding out, I was very young, finding out that my grandmother was one of the first women that ever got to vote. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? And when she said that at dinner, I like, huh? I wasn't aware that women hadn't had the vote. Yes. Do you know what I mean? As a young woman. And we, in our classes in history, which is what I think what's so important about your site and a living archive, I wasn't taught anything about black history. And, you know, in my, in, in 20, 20 years of school, 12, 14 years of school, when I got to college, then there was a black history class. It's astounding to me that the, really the history of women Black contribution, any of the immigrants that came to America, most of that is not covered in history no. books. What I learned about was George Washington's fake teeth. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Or his fault. No one told me about all the other layers of history yeah. in our country. So, I mean, it's just astounding to me. It's astounding. Well, I'll offer just one other thing. Dr. Harris organized a series for CIA. We just completed the last week of it last week, actually. It was a 10-week series that sort of focused on the food of the African diaspora, called it Food of Africa and its Diaspora in the Americas. And so it was sort of 10 weeks of contextualizing the worlds of Black food ways for the students of the CIA. And it's going to be a great courses series and sort of evolving itself into a more sort of curriculum-based project for them. But I think that that's your point about progress is sort of, I maybe am more optimistic or sort of more, I'm, in, I'm, I'm willing to give us more grace than some folks may be, that we are in relative culinary infancy in this country, right? Like there's a way in which we are trying to define ourselves as a sort of culinary country, right? Our culinary identity doesn't have the, the benefit of centuries of cultural infusion and language that concedes credit. So much of the work I'm interested in is really sort of not about rewriting American history. It's 
add in a layer of context, right? And so like this project, I'm really interested in doing more work like that because we got to sort of say the words in 10 weeks of where Black Hand and the American Pie lies. But then it, I think it gives us best practices to, to your point of all these other folks to sort of do the same work. What would that look like if you were so beholden to the culture from which you come and you did the culture? I, I want there to, I, my site focuses laser focus on black work and American gastronomy. But I want, I need that dope Filipino chef to tell me about, about Filipino food history. I need somebody to get so deep into, you know, the sort of specificity of all of Italy and just give me those gems that it's about sort of asking, deputizing people to be much more culturally responsible for the work we say we do. Yes, I know this because I have traveled almost all around the world several times. And I've traveled because I like to travel. When you go to different countries, it's kind of like thinking about a ravioli, but you look at that every culture in the world has a little bit of pastry filled with meat. Okay, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you knew that some mom or chef or hunter, I don't care what you were, was trying to make it stretch. Do you know what I mean? And so instead of a big piece of meat in the Chinese, you know, it's like bao, raviolis, crepla, everybody's got a little pastry with a little piece of meat at Mexico, everywhere. So I think the funnest part, and which is what I love about the culinary journey of, of high on the hog is showing you the migration. And you know, when I was in Africa for the first time, I've been to Africa twice, Trace, and I'm sitting at a table eating local food and the spices that came out, I thought you can just see where the spice trail from India came right down to the, you know, Eastern coast of Africa. You could just see what trade did for the, the food trails, the highways of life in food. It's to me, it's the most interesting thing in the world. And it there's still so much to discover. That's why I like yep. that's why I like food. Amen. Well I'm glad I'm glad you're working on a cookbook proposal. I'm thrilled you have an agent. I mean it's a lot of work to raise in stuff, but it it helps your career. There's no doubt about it. And there is a moment the first time you hold that book in your hand that you think to yourself, oh, I can't believe I did this. And it's a, a tremendous sense of accomplishment. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm excited for you. All the changes and all the information that's coming, how is that going to affect us every day? How is that going to affect restaurants? The thing I know for sure, or the thing I guess, um, especially just not just not just generally, but definitely during the last year as well, the things that have become much more clear for me, and at least in my own work, have been that the chefs and voices I know who are in spaces that are not mainstream, that are so particular, so specific, the restaurateurs I know who thought about their employees first, but when, when all of this happened, who have always been operating ethically and equitably, who have maintained and defied the hospitality math and have been in business for decades. These are people that I'm interested in listening to. I don't need to listen to someone who 
is not paying their employees effectively, who has toxic work environments and thinks that that's fair and right and people should just, you know, sort of stand with the status quo. When you are in community or in right relationship with the function of this work, the idea of sharing your Kone voice with a paying customer and having an exchange with somebody, folks who are doing that work have thrived during this moment because this moment I think has clarified a lot of nonsense. It's clarified a lot of, um, it had it required people to recalibrate their the value system. And I think that um, so much of what we're talking about, regardless of race, regardless of identity, has really been about why we do this work. What is the actual function of the food space? Food media is about, to my mind, is about translation of, of point of view. Right? It's, it's a medium to so your point about the power of a book. This is not this is this kid. This work is very frivolous and very sort of fit, like sort of flimsy very quickly. And in times like these, I think it's so beautiful to watch people really get so clear about why they are giving their life over to this work. I love being a chef. I love being included and being part of this long sort of unbroken chain of creative people who use the kitchen as this kind of battleground, but it is a battleground. And what are you what are you saying when you're in this space? You have immense power. You are literally capturing the power of someone. You are you sort of participate in one of the most intimate exchanges. That's responsibility. And it's been very reckless for a very long time. And so I guess I'm wondering, I guess I'm hopeful that this time has made people maybe get more more clear about that responsibility. So well said. Now, let me tell you, when COVID first hit, and exactly in speaking to your point, when COVID first hit, my feeling was a whole lot of restaurants are not going to make it. Some, and inside I thought, and some of them don't deserve to make it. And I don't mean that in it being negative, but they had, the, as you call it, the mathematics, the numbers had never added up. And they were dependent on abusing people. Okay, that's how the system works. And I worked in enough of them to know. So I think this is a time to reset and evaluate. And you said it so elegantly, honey. It's, it's a very intimate thing to feed people. In catering, most of the time, and especially when I'm online business, I got to create some of the most memorable days of someone's life. That's you right. know what I mean? And then you see them later and they would say, oh, people still talk about that. Or that was the best dinner. I've had celebrities that would say, Cindy and I, one year, I always say this, but it's so silly. Cindy and I, for our celebrity couples one year, all our celebrity clients, we made handmade fudge. Okay, plain old fudge. And we put it in a pretty little box with a bow and a little fancy knife. Because in the olden days, you made fudge in big blocks and people could cut off the pieces they want. People, these people have five homes. They live all over the world. And they said, that was the best Christmas present I got. And Cindy and I thought, can you believe the power of a box of homemade right. fudge? Because reminded them of childhood or their grandmother or the favorite candy shop. So I agree with you. And I think, I'm sorry for all the people that have worked very hard and have suffered during COVID, but I do think it's a chance to rebuild in particular 
the restaurant industry and how we do it. And as you said, if you're actually working as a community and working within your community, you have a great opportunity. Norma Jean Darden, right now, Norma Jean Darden, her sister, wrote this book called Spoonbread Strawberry Wine. I feel like the book may have been written in the 90s, but sort of this iconic book, right? It exists in this sort of canon of like uh, the books people want to lift up all the time. And this, I, I am so interested when people are so beholden to books but have no relation to the, the author. That's that aside, um, Nondre Darden is in her 80s and is still operating her restaurant, Miss Miss Mamie's Spoonbread in Harlem. This restaurant is she, oh, literally in 80 years old, still in her restaurant. You talked about Leah Chase. Mrs. Chase understood the power of her presence in her restaurant. It was in her restaurant almost up until she passes away. I just wonder what how at 92 years old. How, who, what are we really talking about here? What are we really talking about when we're talking about the sort of dysfunction? The dysfunction in this industry exists in spaces where people are not in right relationship with their function. Mrs. Darton understands her function. Leah Chase understood her function. Like there's, there's, there's a way in which we should be recalibrating who we look to as expert, whose example we should be following. I'm not interested in the restaurants that are going to come around and come and go three years from now. That relation, like your point about being a caterer, the reason I, I loved caterer, I love catering, the reason I always wanted to be in this, this area of the industry is because there is an intangible nature to that relationship you have with a client. The dining experience is much more urgent, much more specific, and I can craft and define myself much more clearly in an environment that is not beholden to factors that have nothing to do with my artistic talent, have nothing to do with the food I want to create. That, that aside, I just, there are so many pearls, so many gems, so many sort of points of inspiration that we should be drawing from, and they don't exist where you think they do. And I think that this time has kind of shown us who we should be listening to, who's actually doing work that is, a friend of mine just opened a restaurant in Seattle in the midst of COVID. Her restaurant's function was this idea around creating an alternative restaurant space and it is healing Seattle right now it is making people feel taken care of and at home in a way that her concept maybe wouldn't have even resonated two or three years ago because people didn't quite understand the necessity of an alternative restaurant space I used to always say this in businesses there's earthquakes and then there's mountain building and there's earthquakes and there's a tsunami do you know what I mean but there's things that happen that come and go and you have to weather the storm. But I like your point of really for people and certainly Leah Chase is an example of that and people really what their purpose is and what they're doing in their space and what is important. Do you know yes. what I mean? It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful. Well, I think I learned something today from you. Oh. I learned you different words and I really thank you. That was wonderful. I think that there is a lot of work to be done in, on multiple fronts. There's often a sense of urgency, right? There's this moment we exist in where there's so many problems that are so urgent. And I think the needing, the feeling of wanting to be useful in multiple spaces is a very seductive thing. But I think one of the things that I've learned is listening more than I've been acting, especially in the midst of sort of the social justice movement that we've been in the midst of, and certainly the good food movement, has been to listen to folks who are on the ground and doing this work already and ask them what they need. One of the things that's been so powerful is being in a community with national organizations that are 
legacy building have been around for many, many decades who have been asking for, begging for attention to be paid to the work they were doing. So thinking about um, the Black Southern Farmers um, Collaborative, thinking about people like Karen Washington in New York who has Black Urban Growers Association. There are many, many organizations that exist right now who are concerning themselves with thinking about Black land. And I think that what we can do as chefs and what we should be doing, being in right relationship with folks who actually have stake in this game. There's one organization I love so much. It's the National Black Food and Justice Alliance. It is an extraordinary organization that is a collective of 40 individual member organizations that are concerning themselves with everything from food security to land and land justice. And I think that what is so important about being in community with folks who are doing this work every day is that sometimes even as as much as I care about and love on it and the community with Black people, that the uh, sort of attention to wanting to be helpful is not always helpful. We talk about it when we think about community, about community-based philanthropic organizations that come into urban communities and are actually helpful. This is this phenomenon exists even in, in community, right? In cultural community. And so what the National Food and Justice Alliance does is sort of collectively activate organizations that are already doing this work. There, there's so many organizations that exist under the umbrella of this alliance. And what I think it would do if people are really interested in sort of being in community with and being helpful and useful to this sort of Black food and land movement is ask these folks what they need because they are they are doing this work and have been doing this work for so long and just need eyes and resources. And a lot of times folks who kind of pop up and want to do this work as well um, are sort of subverting the work that's already happening and is could I kind of have best practices in these spaces. So I just, please go donate, be in community with these folks because they are so brilliant and they are just, I don't know, membership in their alliance is just so powerful. You educated us to several things. Thank you. It was perfect. This is the only thing I can think of, and it's, a, it's not exactly, but similar. Years ago, there was only IACP. There was not women's chefs and restaurant tours yet, and IACP was really cooking teachers, and it's been a wonderful organization. I was a member for 25 years. It changed my career, gave me so many opportunities, and I met so many wonderful women in food. But Joyce Goldstein and her best friend who owned China Moon, Barbara Trope, they started WCR because they wanted an organization with no men in it. And I don't mean that they just said we need to have an organization for women chefs because now women were graduating from Culinary Academy, you know, in different places in New York also, they needed a support system. And I remember Joyce saying to me, God, do we really need another organization? And Barbara Trope said, maybe you don't need it, Joyce, but other women need it. And so that's not speaking to that we, we always need another organization, but we need different alliances and helpful things because diff everybody's different. I think your point of speaking to, if you want to make a difference, do some research, look out there, see what people are doing and see where you either want to put your dollars or your time. I'm a chef and I have an eye towards history um, and the work I do is sort of in service of culinary professionals. 
and there is certainly, I think, a really powerful moment that's happening where Black shops are being more in community with Black farmers, that there's a, a, a stronger and more intentional, deliberate relationship that's being built. But that's not sort of co-opting the language of the food justice movement. It's sort of being in, in more, being in service of the work that they're doing and recognizing our part in that relationship, right? Like this ideas around helping Black farmers to get their products to market means that as a chef, I have a responsibility now or an opportunity to use this resource that is right there in plain sight to be a source of liberation, helpfulness, whatever, whatever word you want to use. But there's all there's this opportunity right there that we have been sort of maybe not as mindful of. I think it's maybe a more valuable way to engage. Yeah, it's exciting. I think it's exciting. It's a very serious folks who are doing this for justice work. We have an opportunity to make our whole world a better place every single day. It's just that most of us don't. <laughs> you know, we it's not that people don't want to. People are so busy just keeping food on the table or a roof over their head. But when we have an opportunity to make things better, and I totally appreciate um, you spending your time with us today. And I thank you so much because it was my pleasure to speak to you. Oh, this has been a joy. I'm so appreciative of the time to talk to you and can't wait to learn more about your work too. And I saw you, all your cookbooks and I sort of, I don't know, I'm so interested in, uh, I, I don't know if you sort of, it was tangential point you were making about women-led organizations. I remember most of them, right? Like I, WCR, I remember being, I remember moving back to New York in 2005 and be, not being sure about what this new phase of my life, my life was going to look like, my work was going to look like. And WCI was super active in New York at the time. And that was, that was the most important part, the, the most important organization I was a part of during that era because it gave me language, right? Like so much of what you're talking about in terms of even the way people want to get involved or want to do better for themselves or want to be more, I don't know, want their work to be more impactful. Like that's to me about language. It's about sort of having the vocabulary and sort of the, the tools at your disposal to be able to apply, right? Like people aren't lazy so much. They just, even the site, right? Like I, my site was really because I didn't have a starting point. I wasn't doing anything particular. I was just sort of making it easier to access information, right? Like you, if you don't have the language of the thing you say you want to do, it's hard to navigate it. And we dismiss that disconnect so often and dismiss people's passion or you don't know who the next impactful person is going to be if you just give them the language and the tools to fight, right? You have to come back and talk to us in a, a, about a year and tell us what else is going on. Um, yes. I cannot thank you enough. I want people to go to your website, blackculinaryhistory.com. And how can they listen to your podcast? Yeah, it's Black Desserts. It's on all platforms. And it's a six series, mini sort of limited series. So six episodes a season. Actually got um, Salenti has come on board for season two. So we're going to start production of that over the summer. We got a very, very special guest for the season finale. So hope people listen and it's sort of out in the world. Thank you so much for today. Thank you, Miss Cindy, as always. We are going to post all your information, darling, on our website when the podcast goes up. And if people want to reach us, they can reach us at womanbeyond at icloud.com. We have a Facebook page. We have a website. I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Okay, everyone, thanks so much. Right when you get work and keep in touch. Bye-bye.